Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius Podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Hamid Koja. He's Fibrobiologics Chief Scientific Officer, CSO. And we're going to talk about uh, his work there. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Koja about his background uh, first, and then we'll talk about what uh, his work is involving right now at Fibrobiologics. So, Hamid, thank you for coming. Thank you very much for having me. My background is uh, I started as a researcher in the pharmaceutical industry, looking at small molecules and their impact in signal transduction. And uh, I also have background in epigenetics uh, and uh, in terms of programming cells and the genomics as well. So uh, at uh, Fiber Biologics, so we're hoping to utilize a lot of my experiences and others here to see if we could utilize uh, fibroblasts as a way to cure some of these chronic diseases. Oh, well, what are fibroblasts and what uh, diseases are you looking at? Fibroblasts are one of the most abundant cells in the human uh, body, as well as other mammals and other lower organisms. They, uh, fibroblasts are responsible for developing the connective tissue and uh, the extracellular matrix. And uh, they're only one of two cells known to differentiate uh, the others being stem cells, differentiate into other cells. And there have been publications indicating that uh, fibroblasts can 
differentiated into many types of cells, such as cardiomyocytes, uh, endothelial cells, chondrocytes, and, and um, as well as osteocytes. So uh, one of the good things about fibroblasts is that not only are they easier to obtain and source and grow, but they're also significantly more abundant than stem cells, typically at a ratio of about 10 to 15,000 to one. So uh, they're a more easier source and more ethical, economical source uh, for cells for regenerative medicine. You mean you're inducing pluripotency in fibroblasts instead of stem cells? You can, you can certainly do that, but you don't necessarily have to induce uh, induce uh, pluripotency. It, it is it will differentiate under certain conditions, uh, such as a hypoxic environment and a pressured environment for, for example, for degenerative disc. Uh, publications have indicated that if you put a significant amount of pressure in a hypoxic, hypo, in a hypoxic environment uh, into fibroblasts, they will differentiate into chondrocyte-like cells. Now, one of our studies have, have uh, looked at to see how uh, how that occurs, and we're looking at mechanisms uh, that could be epigenetically t- triggered as well for um, fibroblasts for a variety of different clinical indications. I know you asked the question a few minutes earlier. We're looking at degenerative disc disease, multiple sclerosis, diabetic wound healing, uh, as well as reversing the thymic involution in humans as well. Clinical indications for using fibroblasts. All right. So let's start with the degenerative discs. How would this work? What would it, would you inject fibroblasts and, you know, uh, they would be naturally under pressure or what would you do to make a, yeah, a, so, a, restore well, a degenerative disc? Right. So, so for degenerative disc disease, we already have an, uh, had an IND from the approved by the FDA. We did conduct a phase zero, phase zero, phase one, two clinical trial, which we're looking into the data right now. Uh, it involved the direct injection of six, uh, six million fibroblasts into the intervertebral disc. We, uh, our trial um, included 21 patients uh, in three different groups. And uh, the data looks promising. In terms of the safety uh, of the trial, there were no adverse events noted in our clinical trial, which is very, very good for us. And, and it does give us indication that we might see some efficacy. We're looking at the data right now, and we should have the data analysis finalized uh, in about a month. So we will have that uh, the results of that trial posted on clinicaltrials.gov. Along with so what, what are you doing in the trial? You're injecting the fibroblasts and then what to make sure they differentiate properly? Yeah, so what we're doing is um, uh, for this clinical trial, there have been clinical trials done using stem cells for degenerative disc disease. So we're following basically a similar methodology. We're looking at uh, uh, three things. We're looking at safety to see, to make sure that there are no adverse reactions to these uh, allogenic fibroblasts injected directly into the degenerative disc. Uh, we're also looking at uh, measuring the disc height and disc height improvements over time. Uh, and we've also looked at We've also looked at the dependency on pain and uh, uh, looking at how much the inflammation of these discs have improved over the course of the treatment. Now, granted, our, our trial was a single injection and then followed by up to 16 weeks. So we're looking at uh, the data 12 months 
uh, were looking at the data and analyzing it to see if there was any improvement in this kind. We did notice, uh, based on interviews uh, and assessments of these patients, that there have been a reduction in pain uh, over time, but we, we will have the detailed results uh, announced fairly soon. Right, but after you inject the cells, are you relying on the normal functioning of the joint to compress the fibroblasts to induce them to become chondrocytes? Or how does that occur? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so one thing to note is that the fibroblasts, the, the impact that we would like to see from fibroblasts that we've seen in, uh, in preclinical studies is two. One is uh, reducing the inflammation. Uh, fibroblasts have been known to uh, have been described as immune modulators of, of reducing inflammation. We've seen that in a variety of uh, uh, our preclinical studies as well as other published data. But second, just the normal environment of the disc, it's a hypoxic, it's under pressure. So that should lead to some sort of differentiation from the fibroblasts into chondrocyte-like or chondrocyte cells. Okay. Um, as I understand, fibroblasts occur when there's a wound, you know, let's say heart attack or skin lesion or whatever it may be. So does this happen anyway when uh, people have an inflamed joint? Do fibroblasts come and uh, why are they not compressed? If so, did they come in that state? Well, fibroblasts, you have to consider that there are a variety of subpopulation of fibroblasts. Uh, I think a recent publication indicated that just even dermal fibroblasts constitute of at least 20 different subpopulations that have been fated to different mechanisms. So in wound healing, yes, fibroblasts are involved in every single stage of wound healing from the initial inflammation phase to the tissue remodeling phase uh, uh, as well. So in terms of for degenerative disc, we're, we're, we're manufacturing these cells specifically to be faded towards chondrocyte differentiation. So we're hoping that that's what is occurring during the clinical trial uh, for these patients. But we have seen chondrocyte uh, differentiation in animal model studies. So we're hoping that we would see that in uh, these patients. And that's why our IND was approved because we showed some good results uh, in the preclinical studies to the FDA. Yeah, I would think that uh, if you're injecting this into an inflamed pressure already because yeah. of fluid buildup and all that, so maybe it's sadly an ideal environment for these things to turn into chondrocytes. Yeah, it is. Well, for, for one thing, as I mentioned, uh, fibroblasts do reduce inflammation. Uh, they do inhibit the expansion and, uh, of Th17 helper cells and Th1 cells, uh, which uh, are the lead cytokines involved in inflammation. So that uh, fibroblasts have been shown to do that. So we do see uh, in animal model studies uh, a significant reduction as compared to even stem cells of uh, inflammation and inflammation-inducing uh, cytokines. And we hope to see that as well in the clinical trial data. So well, by reducing the inflammation, then it makes the environment more susceptible to uh, differentiating uh, of these cells into chondrocytes. So uh, we'll see what our data shows. Uh, I mean, the, our clinical data is being analyzed uh, we're, we're hopeful that we would see some uh, positive results uh, once the, it's completed. Wait, so, oh, so you don't know if uh, injecting these in an inflamed state helps them or there's other countervailing forces? 
Not, not in a clinical trial and humans, no. In animal model studies, we've shown that it not only reduces inflammation and pain, but it also does differentiate into chondrocyte type cells, uh, like type cells. So we wanted, that's the reason for the clinical trial. So we, so we could see if we could duplicate that in, in humans as well. Right. But what happens if you inject this into an inflamed joint, healthy joint? Has that been tested? And again, is yeah. the inflammatory environment actually helpful for these cells? Well, we've seen that in animal model studies. That we, we, in animal model studies, we induce an injury uh, into the disc uh, and uh, to a known region for a specific at a specific size, and then we monitor and introduce fibroblasts. And we've seen that it does reduce inflammation, uh, and it does help rebuild rebuilt the intervertebral disc to an extent. So well, what we've seen in animal model studies, and we've monitored the blood cytokines as well, we see all the indicators or markers of inflammation being significantly reduced. So we will see, we will hopefully see that as well in uh, the clinical trial results. Okay. What about uh, other applications like wound healing and the other ones you mentioned? How do those work? Right, so we've had a clinical phase zero one clinical trial completed for multiple sclerosis. Now, this means depending completely on the immune modulation, as well as recruitment of stem cells, and uh, and our, our animal model studies have indicated that, that it even helps rebuild uh, the myelin sheet by inducing expansion of oligodendrocytes, which are the cells responsible for 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 the myelin sheet uh, surrounding the neurons. And our clinical trial, which involved infusion of a hundred million uh, of these allogenic uh, fibroblasts into patients, we've seen no adverse reactions noted. It was a mainly a safety clinical trial done on five patients, but we do see some efficacy, secondary outcome efficacy results, which are uh, quite intriguing. So we're hoping uh, to uh, file for a phase uh, one, two clinical trial fairly soon. Uh, for MS. Now, that involves completely utilized, uh, depending on uh, not differentiation of the fibroblast, but looking at the immune modulation and uh, recruitment of uh, um, stem cells to differentiate into oligodendrocytes. Uh, and we see that in animal model studies. We're hoping to see that in a, in a clinical trial in human as well. And now our other uh, very interesting clinical indication is diabetic foot ulcer healing. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, fibroblasts are involved in every step of wound healing. Uh, and we're hoping to see that uh, by uh, by providing fibroblasts in a, a gel matrix uh, as, as a wound uh, care for uh, diabetic foot ulcers. We're hoping to see a, um, a reduction in the amount of time it takes to heal these very large and uh, sustained wounds uh, in diabetic patients. Uh, we have initiated the preclinical animal model study, and we're hoping to have that result done by mid-August. Uh, and then file for an IND for patient uh, testing, hopefully by first or second quarter of next year. Where do these uh, fibroblasts come from? The patient themselves or the cultured lines? From we could people? certainly, 
Yeah, we could certainly do that. We could have them be autologous from the same patient, but we'd see for, for the degenerative disc disease as well as for MS, we used allogenic. These uh, dermal fibroblasts came from uh, excess surgical uh, skin. Uh, so from, uh, let's say, from tummy tucks and other surgeries, excess skin is used to, uh, to isolate uh, and expand the human dermal fibroblasts for these applications. So is there an immune response? Like, uh, is there an MHC mismatching? Or, you know, when the patient gets these, uh, again, does the body see it as foreign actors or no? No, that's a very good question. So we haven't seen that. So they're, they're considered tolerogenic, much like many of the mesenchymal stem cells. The immune response is minimal. And so for our work, we do intend on isolating and having a source of multiple MHC classes to match with patients. If we used allogenic, uh, of course, for autologous, we won't need that. I don't know. When you mentioned that the, uh, the fibroblasts differentiate in a hypoxic environment and at higher pressure, it made me think of cancer. Have you guys considered at all trying to inject these uh, literally into a tumor or around it because of the hypoxic environment and seeing what they do? Yeah, we have some, uh, some small uh, studies that we did with cancer for two types of cancer, and we've noted some tumor reduction, but we have to be careful. So we need more studies done with fibroblasts than cancer because of fibroblast-associated cancer cells or cancer-associated fibroblasts that are you, you pro- you've probably read about quite a bit because they are involved in cancer formation and tumor maintenance. Uh, we have to be careful. So we have done some initial studies that look promising, but we'll have to look at specific subpopulations and perhaps epigenetic triggering to further utilize them for cancer. It is one of the clinical applications, but I don't think we will start looking at that very heavily until the latter part of 2023. You know, dish experiments in the lab before any animals or people or anything, if you put fibroblasts, again, in an environment that's hypoxic and at higher pressure, what are you noticing? Like how do their epigenetics change? When they differentiate, when you do this in a dish, you know, again, hypoxic environment, high pressure, can you, can you see the differentiation occur and are there epigenetic marks that arise? And, you know, when it differentiates into another cell, can you tell the progenitor cell it came from? Well, one thing to note is the hypoxic, the high pressure environment uh, fibroblasts are only, we've only utilized that in degenerative disc disease. So for other clinical indications, these have to be cultured differently to match the the destination or the recipient's location. So we, we can't use the same hypoxic, high-pressure culturing environment as we do for other clinical indications. Now, for cancer, our, uh, our in vitro uh, studies have indicated uh, reduction. We did a small animal model study with uh, xenograft tumors that showed tumor reduction in size, but we have to look at, we have to do uh, quite a bit more work in looking at the mechanism of action uh, of, of these fibroblasts in certain tumors. Yeah, so what kind of environments do you think they will not function well in versus the best environments they could be in? It sounds like a joint has at least two of the hallmarks that get them to differentiate, but are there other environments that are still workable but less favorable? And which ones do you think will not be workable in the body? Well, of course, fibroblasts, uh, although uh, they will be utilized 
you can utilize them in a variety of different clinical applications or, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the ones that we are focusing on that we know have a good promise of working, and we've seen some animal model studies to indicate that, have been in degenerative disc disease, multiple sclerosis, and diabetic wound healing. Uh, we're also out of interest. We're also looking at uh, reversing thymic involution. As you're probably aware, as you age, your thymus begins to, well, uh, to go through involution. That means it stops working and filling with adipose type cells. And it is considered one of the main reasons for increasing cancer risk when you go beyond a certain age, like 70 years old at, at the point, and also an increase in autoimmune disorders as you age. So by uh, our hope is by using thymic fibroblasts us uh, injection or introduction, we could see uh, a reversing of the evolution process, thereby making the immune system more uh, robust and recognizing some of these uh, tumor tumor types, uh, um, uh, cancer cells, etc. So we're we're looking at that as well. Our our goals are fairly limited to these five clinical indications, so all our studies will be based on that for the time being. But of course, if we see some other clinical applications that seems interesting, we will look at that. But for the time being, uh, we're looking at only at these five clinical indications for use of fibroblasts. Five indications of the fibroblasts uh, differentiate into the necessary cell types to uh, heal that particular area? Yeah, exactly. So for wound healing, we're looking at looking at the fibroblasts, not only differentiating, but also screening extracellular matrix necessary for the recruitment of other type of cells, endothelial cells, vascular cells, et cetera, to rebuild the, the damaged tissue caused by diabetic ulcers. So, and that's in the, in the preclinical study phase. So we're uh, hoping to have the data by mid-August to see how well it works. What about uh, inbound and outbound extracellular vesicles? You know, perhaps the fibroblasts are signaling and then they're receiving, you know, exosomes from surrounding tissue saying, all right, you know, maybe the, maybe the fibroblasts are saying we're stressed, we're hypoxic. They're sending out exosomes and then the ones that come in down to them are signaling, no. okay, differentiate to this type of tissue. Do you think no, that's going very, on? Yeah, very good question. And actually in our preclinical study, we're looking at fibroblast derived exosomes. Uh, as as a possible treatment for uh, diabetic foot ulcers. So we're looking at that as well. Of course, uh, and uh, fibroblast growth factors, as you're probably aware, are are, well described for um, initiating vascularization in multiple tissue types, including wounds and uh, even in tumor tissue. So uh, we know that those growth factors are important, but we have to remember also as well is that these growth factors, fibroblast growth factors, are, have to be triggered epigenetically or by other cells to initiate the expression of these uh, certain growth factors that might be important in certain clinical aspects. When you inject fibroblasts into a site, you know, whatever indication you're looking at, how much of a delay or a lag is there until they, they seem to start differentiating and taking action and constructing? No, that, that's a very good question. So we've seen, for example, for MS and our animal model study, we're 31 days after injection, we start seeing an increase in myelin expression and oligodendrocyte expansion. Uh, and we did that comparison with adipose uh, as well as uh, bone marrow-derived stem cells as comparison. 
And whereas those start to fall within about 15 days, with fibroblasts, we see that significant expression of myelin, increase of expression of myelin, as well as oligodendrocyte expansion, even up to 31 days from a single injection. So as you can imagine, in our second clinical trial, phase two clinical trial for MS, we're going to be assessing multiple uh, injection or infusion of this uh, of the fibroblast and not just a single infusion. So um, how long do you project it? There'll be so you're through clinical trials for at least one of the indications. Like which one's the one that's furthest along? We are uh, assessing data for phase one, phase two clinical trial for degenerative disc disease. We're looking at the data right now. We're analyzing it. It has completed. We completed phase zero one of uh, MS clinical trial, and we, we've completed that, and it showed uh, safety. That means there were no adverse reactions to. Uh, infusion of 100 million tolerogenic uh, allogenic fibroblasts. Uh, and for wound care, for our diabetic foot ulcer uh, clinical trial, we're hoping to initiate that some sometime in the first or second quarter of 2023. As I mentioned, we're, we're in the middle of preclinical animal model study for that, uh, for, the, for the diabetic foot ulcer. So we should have the results by August. Uh, and we will be submitting for an IND fairly quickly after that. Yeah, how long do you guess that um, you know the, any of these protocols could make it into clinic clinical use? Well, yeah. So that's uh, so. For example, for MS, uh, the monitoring period has to be for two years. So for our uh, next clinical trial for multiple sclerosis, that monitoring period will be for two years and perhaps another two years for finalizing some of the other information that the FDA will need. So I don't, if everything works out well in another four years, we should see results for MS. For diabetic foot ulcers, uh, because uh, wound healing is far more rapid, uh, we should see some results. We should have some uh, results from phase two trials, hopefully by mid-2024. So 2025 might be a time period for a product for diabetic foot ulcers if everything works according to our expectations for for diabetic foot ulcer uh, healing. For a degenerative disc, again, monitoring periods are long. I don't know if you've seen some of the clinical trials that have been done using stem cells for a degenerative disc. Their monitoring period is also long because chondrocyte differentiation and development takes a long time. So that monitoring period would have to be about two years as well. So that's a product that would take another four or five years uh, of development before it's uh, available in the market. What, what do you think would happen if you uh, pre-treated a site? You know, let's say you're going to go to, you know, a, a certain disc you want to regenerate. You first get like the exudates, you know, the uh, exosomes or extracellular vesicles from fibroblasts and you inject those into the site maybe like a day later, then put the fibroblasts in there or, you know, an hour later. And you kind of, again, pre-treat the site with these maybe supposed instructions for the fibroblasts. You think they might do their job sooner, differentiate faster? That's a study that we haven't done. And we haven't uh, carried out even in vivo studies, as you described, so in vitro studies. So we'll have to do some in vitro studies followed by in vivo animal model, and then we could hopefully get to the clinic if that works. So th- those, are, those are some of the experiments we're hoping to do and to find the exact mechanism of action of the fibroblasts. 
uh, and, and let's say in, in degenerative disc as well as for wound healing, etc., we're looking at the mode of actions. We have to provide that uh, uh, as well. So we're hoping to do those experiments. Uh, your, your experiment does seem intriguing. Uh, so I'll have to put a little bit more thought on how we could test that and, and still control all the variables involved. Yeah, hopefully it helps you. Maybe it'll speed things up. Who knows? Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, keep in touch with you and see. Very good. Well, Hamid, thanks so much for coming. Uh, tell me where can people find out more about your company and you and your efforts and track things? Absolutely. Uh, they can certainly monitor our clinical trials by searching our company in clinicaltrials.gov, but uh, they can also uh, look at some of uh, our patents. We have over 150 patents uh, using fibroblasts for clinical indications. They can look at uh, fibrobiologics.com for more information. And of course, they can always get in touch with us and either I or Pete, our CEO, uh, will provide any information necessary. Excellent. Well, Hamid, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.